Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 47. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode in my bedroom closet in New Orleans, Louisiana, on November 11th, 2021, the 103rd anniversary of the end of World War I. It is the 11th day of the 11th month, but not quite the 11th hour, at least not here in the Crescent City. Before we get to today's episode, I don't want November 11th to pass without looking at some of the things that happened on this date. After all, it might be years before I again record an episode on November 11th. In modern memory, November 11th marks the end of the war that combines sheer pointlessness and industrialized killing like no other before it. In the United States, November 11th is Veterans Day. And we have to a great degree overwhelm the memory of World War I with generic tributes to all the people who have fought for this country at any time or any place. In the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth countries, November 11th is Remembrance Day, formerly Armistice Day. And those countries keep the memory of the Great War alive by the wearing of poppies. If you have the chance to be in London on November 11th to see the tradition, Take it. Why the poppies? They come from an iconic poem by a Canadian soldier of that war, John McRae. He had fought in some of the unbelievably bloody battles in Flanders, 340 years after the Duke of Parma had conquered the same area for Philip II. McRae noticed that poppies would quickly grow over the graves of soldiers buried in a hurry. So he wrote, In Flanders' Fields which I'm going to read right now because it is one of my favorite poems ever. I hope you like it as much as I do. In Flanders' fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead, Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw a sunset glow, loved, and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you, from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. Kids, if your teacher ever asks you to memorize a poem and recite it to your class, I don't even know if that still happens, should rock their world and use that one. Other things happened on November 11th, several of them prominent in the history of the Americans. On November 11th, 1620, not too far away on our own deliberate podcast timeline, 41 passengers of the Mayflower anchored just off today's Provincetown, Massachusetts, entered into an agreement for self-government known today as the Mayflower Compact. We shall discuss exactly what that document said and what it may or may not have stood for when we get to Plymouth Colony at some point in the next few months. Also on this date, this time in 1831, the Commonwealth of Virginia executed Nat Turner by hanging. Turner was an enslaved man who had led an uprising that had an outsized psychological effect on white Americans in the southern states. 
The result was a backlash that made Southern American slavery even more brutal. I have no idea how long it will take me to get to Nat Turner's rebellion and its aftermath, but rest assured that we will cover it. My B for that long digression. We follow our muse around here, so sometimes digressions happen. Back to our timeline. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there is dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, inspiration, oppression, genius, defeat, and glory. Mostly, we hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple or wherever you like to write reviews, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. This is a labor of love, and your support is always motivating. Today's episode is Epilogues and Consequences After the Armada and the Lost Colony of Roanoke. We have two significant loose ends to snip off before we move on down the timeline. What happened after the victory of the Spanish Armada, and what happened to the colonists that John White left on Roanoke Island in August 1587. Let's start with the aftermath of the Armada. The timeline is straightforward enough, helpfully summarized in the back of Robert Hutchinson's book, The Spanish Armada. After being blown and chased to the brink of running aground off Holland, the Duke of Medina Sidonia, short of ammunition, unspoiled food and fresh water, faced a choice. Fight his way back into the English Channel against a now larger English and Dutch naval force, or sail home the long way and abandon Philip II's planned invasion of England. On August 10, 1588, Medina Sidonia ordered the remaining ships of the Armada to sail home for Spain over the north of Scotland. Most of the English fleet, also short on food and ammunition, followed, but only for two days. Once the Spanish passed the Firth of Forth, say that a few times fast, which flows into the North Sea at Edinburgh, Scotland, the shadowing English fleet turned around and sailed for home. The weather would again turn much for the worse, and Medina Sidonia would lose at least 27 ships against the coasts of Ireland and Scotland, more than were sunk or captured by the English in all the fighting. It took a few days for the English to realize they had won. On April 18th, Elizabeth traveled to review Leicester's soldiers on parade at Tilbury Fort on the north bank of the Thames, 20-some miles downriver from London. There, at age 55, she gave the speech of her lifetime, at least by some accounts. I'll read the juicy part, difficult as it may be to follow actual Elizabethan English in a podcast. My loving people, I have been persuaded by some that are careful of my safety to take heed. I committed myself to armed multitudes for fear of treachery. But I tell you that I would not desire to live to distrust my faithful and loving people. Let tyrants fear. I have always so behaved myself that under God, I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and goodwill of my subjects. 
where I am come among you at this time, not for my recreation and please, but being resolved in the midst and heat of battle to live and die amongst you all to lay down. For my God and for my kingdom and for my people, my honor and my blood even in the dust. I know I have the body but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and of a king of England too. And take foul scorn that Parma or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm. To the which, rather than any dishonor shall grow by me, I myself will venture my royal blood. I myself shall be your general, judge, and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. And so on and so forth. The men responded all at once with a great huzzah, or so it is said, and Lester believed that her speech had, quote, so inflamed the hearts of her good subjects as I think the weakest person among them is able to match the proudest Spaniard that dared to land in England. All of this as it may be, over the next several days, evidence accumulated that the immediate threat of invasion had receded. It cost Elizabeth almost 800 pounds a day to keep her men in the field, ready to fight the Spanish should they land. Ever mindful of the purse, on August 20th, just two days after giving her defiant speech, Elizabeth ordered the demobilization of her army. On August 31st, Parma, now having no chance to cross the channel, did the same. The victory over the Armada did not end the Anglo-Spanish War, which would continue until 1604. In November 1588, the Spanish Council of State urged Philip to continue the war, and he did. The next year, an English armada under Francis Drake and John Norris would attack Spain at various points to very little effect and very heavy losses, particularly from disease that ravaged the English side. Then the Spanish would try again with another armada, only to have it blown away by more bad weather. The war expanded and contracted in the Low Countries, France, and Ireland, with other naval battles and privateering actions along the way. Elizabeth never abandoned the Dutch, as they had long feared, and they would go on to torture the Spanish for the rest of the century. Eventually, the old war horses died off, the combatants were exhausted, and peace began to make sense. Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth's genius at espionage, was the first to go in April 1590, probably of cancer. Sir Richard Grenville, who did not set sail in the fight against the Armada, he was charged with organizing defenses on land in the West Country, would die heroically off the Azores in 1591, leading his ship revenge in a solo and suicidal attack against a Spanish fleet of 53 ships, battling for 12 hours and thereby securing the escape of the rest of the English fleet. Hero that he was, later romanticized in a ballad by Alfred Lord Tennyson, Grenville remained sort of a D-bag, screaming as he died that his own men were traitors and dogs. And in a final poetic moment, the Spanish fleet that Grenville and his men had fought alone and crucially detained would be wiped out by a cyclonic storm days later. Sir Martin Frobisher took a mortal gunshot wound fighting the Spanish in France and died November 15, 1594. In 1596, Sir Francis Drake and Sir John Hawkins, the West Country cousins who, arguably, had sparked the tender that would fuel the flames of war, 
went to the West Indies to see what damage they might do and prizes they might capture. The mission was a failure. Hawkins died of dysentery off Puerto Rico on January 12, 1596, and Drake followed him on January 28, just off the coast of Panama. Drake's men buried him at sea. On June 20th of the same year, Lord Admiral Charles Howard, who had commanded the English fleet in 1588, attacked the Spanish fleet at Cadiz. Medina Sidonia, who had not been entirely blamed for the failure of 1588, was in charge of the city's defense. His failure to respond quickly and effectively sealed his reputation as a loser, deserved or otherwise. Charles Howard would go on to win the longevity contest, though, finally dying on December 14, 1624. Howard would not only live to know about the settlements at Jamestown and Plymouth, he would spend his retirement very usefully breeding spaniels. I like to think that one of the three that have graced my own house over the years might have descended from Howard's retirement project. William Cecil died on August 4, 1598, and Philip II would die on September 13th that year. His son, Philip III, would continue the war, but with nothing like his father's zeal. Philip II had reigned as King of Spain for 42 years and 240 days, and at the apex had been the most powerful ruler in the world. Elizabeth I would die on March 24, 1604, from bronchopneumonia and septicemia from her decaying teeth. She was 69 years old and had reigned even longer than Philip II, 45 years and 127 days. She was succeeded by James of Scotland, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who Elizabeth had executed. James would rule England as James I, and on August 28, 1604, he signed the Treaty of London, ending the war with Spain. It essentially established the status quo ante. James abandoned the Dutch, just as the spirited Hollanders had feared Elizabeth would do. And he also agreed to suspend privateering against Spanish ships and settlements. The treaty was unpopular in England because a lot of people thought that the war had gained them nothing. But it did. It secured the survival of Protestantism in its most powerful homeland. Historians still argue about the consequences of the victory over the Spanish Armada in 1588. The old English national mythology, that an audacious underdog with brilliant captains at sea defeated the most powerful military on the planet, is not really true. As we have seen, the Spanish invasion was a long shot even under favorable conditions. The whole plan involved precise timing, almost impossible to achieve in a world where communications could not move faster than a horse and usually more slowly. At the same time, there have been the usual modern efforts to tear down the English victory at sea. Robert Hutchinson examines the extraordinarily rough weather of that summer in the context of longer-term volatility in the regional climate and concludes that, quote, it seems very plausible that it was climate change that defeated the unlucky armada rather than the popular misconception that the triumph was brought about by Drake's daring do or the plucky little ships of the English fleet, close quote. Climate change being a popular explanation for many things in recent years. 
I suppose to that I would say first, the Armada sailed in the storms of 1588 rather than in the better weather of 1587 when the English were far less prepared because of the daring-do of Drake at Cadiz and Cape St. Vincent the year before. Second, the English were able to evade Spanish attempts to grapple because of the innovations of John Hawkins, whose race-built ships were simply too fast for, quote, Spanish valor and Spanish steel. So who really knows? As for the consequences, it is true that the extended Anglo-Spanish War ended inconclusively, essentially restoring the status quo ante. It is also true, as we are about to see, that the war would doom the English settlement on the Outer Banks and the Treaty of London would deprive England of its geopolitical interest in establishing a forward base from which to launch privateers against Spain. But the war would secure Protestantism in England, and that would mean that England would remain a geopolitical adversary of Spain rather than a client of Catholicism. The next generation of England's seaborne entrepreneurs captured many Spanish prizes during the war, and those men would go on to finance the settlement of English North America, starting at Jamestown. Whatever one might think of that, it meant, for sure, that North America would be fundamentally English rather than fundamentally Spanish. For my money, that is the legacy of the war with Spain that Francis Drake did more to provoke and more to win than any other single person other than Elizabeth I. Now, what about John White and those Roanoke colonists? White, the artist charged almost by default with leading the expedition of 1587, had left the colony and his daughter and granddaughter on August 28 of that year, at the behest of the colonists stranded there by the Portuguese pilot and pirate Simon Fernandez. The colonists were worried, with all sorts of justification, that reinforcements and badly needed supplies would not be forthcoming without a forceful advocate back in England, and they insisted that White go home to secure that relief. When he reached England in November after an arduous crossing, White learned the crushing news that the Privy Council had grounded all English shipping to prepare for the Armada. Sir Walter Raleigh, the only Englishman with a license from Elizabeth to settle North America, agreed to dispatch a lone pinnace to North Carolina with supplies and directed Grenville to take charge. For reasons that are not clear, the pinnace never sailed. James Horn speculates that Raleigh and Grenville decided that sending a single boat across a North Atlantic patrol by the Spanish was too long a shot. Raleigh and Grenville then agreed that Grenville would prepare a bigger expedition of five substantial ships that would sail the Roanoke colony, probably with new colonists, and then head to the West Indies to plunder Spanish shipping. Raleigh probably figured he had the pull with the Queen to get permission to sail, notwithstanding the ban. But on March 28, 1588, to White's agony, the Privy Council ordered Grenville to stay in port. His ships were too important to the defense of the realm and would indeed fight in Howard's fleet against the Armada four months later. Raleigh was ultimately able to secure permission to sail two small ships, a 30-ton bark under the command of Arthur Facey and a 25-ton pinnace, neither of which were useful to Howard and Drake. White went along with a handful of new settlers, but once at sea, 
Basie abandoned any interest in going to North Carolina and diverted to look for prizes in the Atlantic. To Facey, the relief of the Roanoke colony was nothing more than a pretext to get permission to sail for profit. He went after a much larger French ship off Madeira and failed miserably. In fighting the French, Facey's bark was badly damaged, and White himself had suffered two wounds to the head and a bullet wound in his thigh. He survived, as did Facey's ship, only to limp back to England in May 1588. White would not get another ride back to North Carolina until 1590. Also in the spring of 1588, Spain's naval high command ordered the then governor of Florida, Pedro Menendez Marquez, the nephew of the founder of St. Augustine, Pedro Menendez de Aviles, who we have seen before, to find and destroy any English settlement on the Atlantic coast. They had interrogated various captives and defectors from Grenville's expedition of 1585 and Drake's West Indies raid of 1586 and had good reason to believe that there were English on the Atlantic coast, probably at the entrance to the Chesapeake. Menendez assigned Captain Vicente Gonzalez in a bark with about 30 men to do the deed. Gonzalez was a good choice insofar as he had been the pilot on the expedition that planted Jesuits and Paquaquinio, the Powhatan Indian known to the Spanish by his baptismal name, Don Luis de Velasco, at the mouth of the Chesapeake all the way back in September 1570. Gonzalez had sailed between the Caribbean, St. Augustine, and St. Helena, roughly Hilton Head, for years, and in 1586 had sailed up the Atlantic coast. Regarding Paquaquinio and the Jesuits, you may recall that we looked at that mission all the way back in episode 30, the Spanish on the Atlantic coast and the strange story of Don Luis, which dropped on July 15, 2021. Paquaquinio, fluent in Spanish and well aware of the threat the Spanish posed to his people, murdered the Jesuits who had returned him to his homeland in February 1571. We will see him again. Gonzalez left St. Augustine at the end of May 1588, just as the Armada was trying and failing to get out of Lisbon's harbor, and arrived at the mouth of the Chesapeake within days. He searched the western shoreline up to the head of the bay and then crossed over to the eastern shore and landed at various points. There were no English where they were expected to be. At the end of June 1588, just as the Armada was regrouping at Corona from that first ugly storm, Gonzalez headed out of the Chesapeake in the direction of St. Augustine. Just off the outer banks of North Carolina, the weather turned ugly and Gonzalez sought shelter in one of the inlets. The one he chose happened to be Port Fernando, named by the English after Simon Fernandez. There he saw Pamlico Sound in the southern end of Roanoke Island. And on Hatteras Island, they saw a disused slipway for beaching boats and some discarded equipment and barrels for collecting rainwater. But Gonzalez saw no actual English people. By early July 1588, therefore, a bit more than 10 months after John White had left for England, the Spanish knew where the English had been, but did not know whether they were still somewhere in the area. They may have been in hiding, or they may have left the Outer Banks altogether. Whether or not relief of the Roanoke colony was even possible in August 1588, 
The defeat of the Armada brought no relief to John White's anxiety. Sir Walter Raleigh was distracted with the management of his 42,000-acre fief in Ireland. Fief, by the way, being the correct term in contrast to fiefdom, which I happen to know drives medievalists kind of nuts. Raleigh was also dealing with the dashing Earl of Essex, a new rival for the status of Elizabeth's favorite. The much younger Essex ended up challenging Raleigh to a duel, presumably because of some calumny. Had it not been for the forceful intervention of the Privy Council, there might not be a city named Raleigh in North Carolina. White spent the balance of 1588 and 89 trying to organize his own passage back to the Americas, preferably with more colonists and definitely with substantial supplies. He couldn't find ships and sail in the second half of 1588 because of the need to defend against the Armada. And in 1589, the planned English counterattack had the same effect. It wasn't until early 1590 that White was finally able to hitch a ride alone with a group of privateers sailing to the West Indies. As with Arthur Facey two years before, they had agreed to take White so that Raleigh would secure permission for them to sail— and once at sea, they did as Facey did, devoting the time between March and August 1590, hunting for prizes. Fortunately for White, one of the captains was Edward Spicer, who had commanded the flyboat in the Roanoke fleet of 1587. Spicer was sympathetic to White's interest in getting back to the colonists. And eventually he and another captain, Abraham Cock, headed to Roanoke, arriving at Hatteras in mid-August after a tussle with a hurricane off Florida. It had been almost exactly three years since White had left, and since then, he had had nothing but bad luck and failure. Sadly for White, his luck was not about to change. Spicer and Cock led their ship's boats through the inlet at Port Fernando, aiming for Roanoke Island, where they had seen a column of smoke rising, as if from a village fire. All of a sudden, the wind whipped up and the waves rose. Cox's boat was nearly swamped, and Spicer's boat was capsized, and several men, including Spicer, drowned. The survivors wanted to turn back right then, but White had by this time befriended Cox, so he agreed to proceed to the island, arriving on the beach at last light. The next morning, Cox, White, and a subset of the sailors bushwhacked to the site of the fire, they found only smoldering grass and charred trees, the result of a lightning strike. White led the group down the island to the site of the settlement. There was no sign of human life apart from the fairly fresh footprints of a couple of Indians. Climbing over the last dune before the settlement, White saw the letters CRO carved into a tree. Now let's go to James Horn's description of the moment. The settlement was deserted, the houses had been dismantled, and the colonists were gone. His first response was dismay. He had dreaded finding the settlement abandoned. What had forced the settlers to leave? But as he looked around, he felt a gradual sense of relief. There was no sign that the settlement had been attacked. The palisade built by the settlers was intact, and he discovered the word, Croatoan carved on one of the main gateposts without any cross or signs of distress that would have indicated the settlers had been in grave danger. 
As they continued to look around the site, Cox's men found iron bars, a couple of pigs of lead, four small cannon, cannonballs, and other heavy gear scattered about, almost overgrown with grass and weeds. Anxious to find further clues to what had happened to the colonists, White and Cox searched the surrounding area. Picking their way down to the waterside and following the shore to the point of a creek nearby, they found the settlers' boats and pinnace were gone, along with a cannon left with them. The absence of boats confirmed that the settlers had departed from the island in a planned move and had not been captured or killed by the seconds of the Spanish. Long-standing and careful listeners will recall that the word Croatoan refers to the stretch of the outer banks to the south, occupied by Manteo's tribe, who had supported the English through thick and thin. White believed that the settlers had gone there, and Cock agreed to take him forthwith. Unfortunately, the bad luck that had plagued White's efforts to do right by his family and the other colonists, or at least rejoin them, continued. As Cox shipped, the Hopewell was preparing to sail south to Croatoan. A storm blew up that snapped the ship's anchor cable. They lost a second anchor trying to reestablish their position. Down to one remaining anchor, and without an anchor they would be doomed. Cox could not risk staying in the area. He agreed with White to sail to the Indies, spend the winter on some unpopulated island refitting outside of Spain's prying eyes, and returned to Croatoan in the spring. Then fate administered her final blow. Two days down along the Florida coast, yet another storm blew up, this time with ferocious winds out of the northwest. The Hopewell was pushed far out to sea, and by the time the wind subsided, Cock and his men decided that the best course was to head for the Azores, where the Hopewell connected with a big squadron of English ships under Sir John Hawkins. That guy is everywhere. John White would get back to England at the end of September, never to return to North America or to see his daughter and granddaughter again. No Englishman ever would. As of White's departure in August 1587, there were something like 130 English people who would be unaccounted for on the outer banks of North Carolina. Three had been left behind when Francis Drake rescued Ralph Lane in June 1586. Another 15 had been left behind later in 1586 by Sir Richard Grenville, among whom there were only two confirmed deaths. Finally, White had left behind 116 or 117 settlers. What happened to all these people? The fate of the lost colony is one of those big mysteries of history that is of almost no actual significance, except that a lot of people are obsessed with it. The lost colony has inspired plays, countless books, and apparently something of a tourist industry on the Outer Banks. President Franklin Roosevelt even gave a speech in North Carolina on August 18, 1937, making particular mention of Virginia Dare. That first English baby in the history of the Americans, we know that there were French babies at Fort Caroline in 1564, and it is hard to believe that there had been no babies with at least Spanish fathers, has achieved a certain weird mythological status. Per Wikipedia, she has been featured as a main character in books, poems, songs, comic books, television programs, and films. 
her name has been used to sell different types of goods, from vanilla products to soft drinks, as well as wine and spirits. and apparently Americana music. Her name has been taken in vain by feminists to support the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment and by alleged white nationalists. That poor baby's name inspired the vdare.com website. I do not propose to settle the mystery of the lost colonists. There have been and continue to be far more knowledgeable people taking their stab at doing that, and as I've already suggested, however interesting their fate may be, it is actually not of much significance. Suffice it to say that for a long time there have been clues, mere footprints in the sand, above and beyond that original carving that read Croatoan. There were a few early attempts to find them, all of which struck out. Sir Walter Raleigh had a tough time of it in the 1590s, falling out of favor with Elizabeth after marrying and ending up for a spell in the Tower of London. He was happily rehabilitated in the late 90s, and in 1602 dispatched the experienced navigator Samuel Mace to look for the Roanoke colonists now 15 years unaccounted for. Mace found nobody on that voyage, but after crossing in the usual way, he probably did not get even as far north as Hatteras, and so would have missed them anyway. The next year, Raleigh sent Mace and Bartholomew Gilbert to look for the colony in the Chesapeake. Recall that the Chesapeake had been their original destination, and there was the hypothesis that they might have eventually gone there. Mace again turned up nothing, and Gilbert ended up dead, probably taken out by the Powhatans. In 1607, the New Virginia Company established its settlement at Jamestown in the heart of Powhatan Territory. John Smith would effectively lead the defense of the settlement in the first couple of years, and he had famous and extensive interactions with the Powhatans, Pocahontas, and all of them. Now, the Powhatans were ruled by a chief named Wahoon Sunnacock, usually referred to by the English and even Americans today as the Powhatan or merely Powhatan and his brother, Opakanakaw, who would eventually succeed Powhatan as top man. Both men, in separate encounters, told Smith about men to the south who wore cloth and had built houses like those at Jamestown. They lived with tribes that were resisting the push by the Powhatans to incorporate them into their growing federation. Smith had read Richard Hacklight's account of the Roanoke expedition and immediately assumed that the two chiefs were telling him about the lost colonists. Twice in 1608, Smith went looking for them while exploring the area south of the James, but did not find them. In 1609, a couple of Indians, Namuntak and Machumps, returned to London with one of the ships shuttling back and forth to Jamestown. They had not been kidnapped. They were sent by Wahoon Sunnacock, who I will refer to henceforth as Powhatan because it's way easier to pronounce, to learn what they could about the English. At some point during the visit, Namantog visited Thomas Harriet, who'd been along to Roanoke in the expedition of 1585 and had learned some Algonquin from Monteo and Wanchis, who had also been sent across the ocean by their chiefs to learn about the English. 
Machamps became friendly with an up-and-coming booster of North American settlement named William Strakey, with whom he had lengthy conversations. Sitting in Strakey's London study, Machamps spoke of Indians some distance south of the James River who had been taught to build stone houses by English people who had settled on the mainland many years before. According to Machamps, these English had lived quietly with the Indians for almost 20 years until 1607, when Powhatan's men had launched an attack on those villages and killed all the white people they encountered. There were still, however, small groups of English who had gone to live with other tribes, earning their keep by plying their various European trades. Of course, given the language barrier and the various mixed motives of all involved, these thin strands might in the end be just stories. Finally, in 1701, 113 years after the last glimpse of the lost colonists by any European and 74 years after the establishment of Jamestown, a Londoner named John Lawson got it in his head to settle on the coast of North Carolina. Now let's close out with James Horn's description of Lawson's account written some years later. One story in particular stood out in Lawson's mind. On a visit to Roanoke Island, he had seen the ruins of an old fort, as well as some old English coins which have lately been found, and a brass gun, a powder horn, and one small quarter-deck gun made of iron staves and hooped with the same metal. More than a hundred years after the English had departed, the site was still littered with debris left behind by Lane and White's settlers. But Lawson had an even more astonishing story to tell. A group of Hatteras Indians, Croatoans, who either lived on Roanoke Island or often visited it, told him that several of their ancestors were white people and could talk in a book, as we English do. The truth of which, he added, is confirmed by gray eyes being found frequently amongst these Indians and no others. The Indians thought highly of themselves because of their kinship with the English. Then the Indians recounted a story that had been passed down the generations. They told Lawson that the ship which brought the first colonists does often appear amongst them, under sail in a gallant posture, which they call Sir Walter Raleigh's ship. With all the usual caveats, Lawson may have discovered the greater great-great-grandchildren of the settlers who had carved Croatoan on that balustrade post. Not surprisingly, there are projects underway to see if genetic markers among the few remaining Indians of the region connect them to the English of the late 16th century. If you want to learn more about the fate of the lost colony and the various claims made for it, my suggestion is that you go down the Google rabbit hole and behold the vast amount that has been written on the topic. The last chapters of David Beer's Quinn's book, Set Fair for Roanoke, much quoted in this podcast, analyze the evidence as it existed in 1985 when he wrote it in great detail. Even in the last two years, one author or another has claimed to have solved the problem, but none have done without controversy. As I said, I do not propose to sit in judgment on this one. None of this is to say that the Roanoke expeditions would not reverberate in other ways. John White's paintings and maps are crucial to our understanding of the Algonquin Indians of the region at the time the English arrived. Thomas Harriet's observation of the people, 
the flora and the fauna, and his exploration of the Algonquin language are equally essential to history. Finally, and most importantly for the English project in North America, the boosters of colonization in England learned that it was important to intensively capitalize any new settlement and to send a lot of people. What they did not see yet was how unbelievably dangerous the New World could be. The English were more than a hundred years behind the Spanish, and although they must have known the risks as an intellectual matter, Jamestown would reveal that they did not fully understand them. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.